So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash startalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash startalk today. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. Welcome to the Hall of the Universe. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and this is Star Talk. Tonight we're going to explore the science behind the hit TV series Game of Thrones. Oh my god! From from Flying, fire-breathing dragons to magic to what it takes to survive in the Middle Ages. So let's do this. I never tackle these subjects alone. First, my co-host, Michael Ian Black. Hello. Michael. A professional comedian, and you sure. and you are not a stranger to Star Talk. No, You're- I had the Star Talk jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> I had the Star Talk stuffed animals. I'm a fan. So uh, tonight, our topic is, of course, Game of Thrones, and I, I I don't claim particular expertise in that, but other people do, especially this woman here, Helen Keane. Helen, welcome to Star Talk. <laughs> We're going to draw heavily on your expertise in this regard because uh, we couldn't believe this. You wrote a book called The Science of Game of Thrones. <laughs> destiny. It's destiny. And, and I, I'm surprised it's even this thick. <laughs> Lots of pictures. Lots of pictures. <laughs> so let, let's get a taste of why Game of Thrones is such a pop culture phenom. Let's check out this clip. Wherever you are, wherever you go, someone wants to murder you. Are you afraid? Love me some fire-breathing dragons. (laughs) So this is based on a series, a fantasy series by George R.R. Martin of the same title. And that program averages 23 million views per episode. So, Helen, this is set in a medieval age. Hmm. And so, to just to put us on record, what defines the medieval age? Is that even the right thing? Or is it the Dark Ages? What is it? Well, I think it's kind of a term, it's always controversy around these things, it's a sort of term for the period in European history from the end of the Roman Empire, so about sort of... 400, 500 AD until that early, the 15th okay. century. Yeah. Wow, so, so this is a thousand years. Yeah. But there, there are some things that are clearly, it seems to me, post-Dark Ages or le- very late Middle Ages. So it's clearly a mixture of 
uh, of times to enable him to tell whatever story he wants. Yeah. And that, I, doesn't, that doesn't bother people because it's fantasy, I guess. Mm. Is that right? And I think as well, any fantasy or science fiction always to a certain degree reflects the world that it's made in as well. Uh, okay, so I was out at Comic-Con and we stumbled on one of the actors, Isaac Wright. Isaac Wright, who plays the character Bran Stark in the series on HBO. Let's check it out. So, how old are you? 17. 17, and, and the show's been on for six years. Yeah. And you've been in there from the beginning. Yeah. So, no, 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 carry the tube, divide by the, you would have been 11. <laughs> I think I was actually 10, because we did a pilot as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're, you're a career Game of Thrones guy. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> Game of Thrones for life. So they've got, to, they've got to write your character to age with you. Yeah, luckily for me. Because when you're grown up, you kind of stay the same the whole yeah, time. No, yeah, right. it doesn't happen when you, when you were at this age. <laughs> um, did you, uh, as a kid, you wanted to be an actor? Not especially. No, I kind of fell okay. into Shh, the... Don't tell me. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, it was my dream. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a geeky kid, or you're still geeky? Definitely geeky. Yeah? Definitely. Oh, you're yeah. card-carrying. Yeah. <laughs> okay, excellent. And what's your best measure of your geekitude? Well, I'm big into physics. Physics? Yeah, I like physics. Physics. If you're into physics, that's good. We're, we're done here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> physics. So, uh, in the UK, uh, do you have tutors, or do you actually go to school? No, I go to school. You go to school. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so, that just means that the show is not taking you away all the time. Well, it means day. that I'm, when I film the show, I just have to kind of take any work that I know I'm going to miss and try and get it done at the weekends or whenever I've got some days off. Okay, so where are you this year in your educational trajectory? So I'm year, year 12, which is... So there'd be a senior in high school for us. I think so. So I have one more year before college. Before college. So uh, what, do you, what do you want to major in? Um, I'm think, or study, I think I'd quite like to do... A joint honours in music and maths. Music and maths? Yeah. Okay, cool. Do you do music now? Yeah. What do you do? I play piano mainly, but I'm playing a bit of guitar. Right? Okay, this is great. <laughs> uh, I just met, like, recently, Brian May. Oh, cool. <laughs> oh, right. He's the king of physics. <laughs> yeah, hey, there he is. <laughs> it's like, I, re I really want a PhD in astrophysics, but yeah, I will... be a rock star. Yeah, let me be a rock star first. <laughs> let me delay that. <laughs> so Brian May, like lead guitarist of Queen, has yep. a PhD in astrophysics. I know. It's so cool. Can't get cooler than that. And so, Brian Cox as well. Brian Cox. Keyboards. Yeah, Brian Cox, uh, one of the best-known scientists in the UK. Yeah. And, and he, many of us know him here as well. Yeah, but oh, his, yeah, his. It's not as big as he yeah. is in, U in the yeah. UK, but he was also a, a rock star in the UK, yeah. right? Yeah, he was. Had a number, a top... A I think he did. I top think he could. 10 song one year. Yeah. Yeah, so this may be the trend line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, yeah, you'll be a famous actor, then a musician, then you get your PhD. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. <laughs> <laughs> That's a plan. We got this. Tell your parents yeah. you got this going, right? <laughs> um, so, what's the geekiest thing you ever did? Ooh. Well, so it's got to be so geeky that you are simultaneously embarrassed and proud of it. Oh. Okay. I can recite pi to quite a few decimal places. Oh. Oh. How many decimal places? It used to be 60, but I think it's down to about 40 now. Ooh. I know, I'm sorry. Ooh. Okay. Well, why don't we get you on record for, for that? All right. And now, now, just so you know, 40, 50, 60... Among pie people, that, yeah, that's mild. Really yeah, that's, that's, like, so that's entry level. Yeah, that's I like, know. They won't even let you in the bar, okay? <laughs> Some guy can do it to 67,000. Yeah, I, I know. Think. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but, 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 among actors, yeah. okay, maybe you win, okay? So let's go. Let's get the camera on him, <clears> okay? <throat> Come on, I'll rub your shoulders here. Okay. Okay, ready? Get, okay, go. get ready. Okay. I'll start you off. <clears throat> ready? Three. 0.14159653589732384626438327950. Okay, how many did we get there? <laughs> you know who did really well? Who? Chris Hardwick. Oh. Because he majored in math and philosophy. Oh. So we had him on. He went on. It was like, can we stop? Can yeah. we stop him now, please? <laughs> no, but that's good. That is Thank plenty of precision to make any calculation you need to yeah. find where the universe. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. We'll take that as card-carrying, card-carrying geek. <laughs> Thank you.
So the geeks are taking over. Yeah, we're coming out. Coming yeah, so I'm convinced that they mistranslated that line in the Bible. Come on. It's, and the geek shall inherit the earth. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, had you imagined that this was something that would go this long? No, no. I mean, these kind of, you, there are every You're supposed to say at this point, I'd really <laughs> rather direct. Yeah, that's what you're <laughs> Yeah. I think every now and then you come across these shows that click and work and, and, and then kind of snowball into, into these huge phenomenons. But Why do you think it clicked and worked? I think what's cool about Game of Thrones is it is medieval history, but without kind of the historical aspect, if you get what I mean, because it has that sort of basis in reality, but there's still room to explore all these fantastical elements. So the room to explore on top, layered on top of yeah. enough that is medievally real, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I guess that anchors it. And is there anything that surprised you the most about it? Because when I think about the medieval times, I'm just mm. thinking, I'm so glad science got invented. <laughs> That's all I'm thinking. That's all I'm thinking. Yeah, I completely okay. concur. They did what? They yeah. believed what? They <laughs> I think that's very evident in Game of Thrones. You've got all these weird kind of religious sects and, uh -huh. and strange things going on. And magic on is real. Is that, yeah. yeah. And gods are real. And well, what's interesting is the way Game of Thrones um, presents it is it's everyone in the world is skeptical about it. Um, they, they, they don't really believe that there are the dragons there and that all these White Walkers died thousands of years ago. Yeah. But then there are the believers there where stuff actually happens. Yeah, yeah. Now you've got to deal with that. Absolutely. And there were obviously so many things that back in those days you wouldn't have been able to explain or anticipate. Um, uh -huh. And so naturally you, uh, you assume it's magic. So Helen, tell me about what role magic played in the Middle Ages. Well, I think... In the Middle Ages, magic and religion weren't really particularly separated. I mean, I think there was an element in religion that was magic and an element in magic that was religion. mysterious. Yeah. I mean, and I think we go, if we go back even further... So you don't think there was even a distinction? There was just all mystery that you don't understand, and there's somebody who's somebody, telling you about yeah, it. Yeah, and it's charge. either coming from God, it's either coming from a good source, or it's coming from demons and Satan. So, yeah. Right, because you can't have a good source unless there's an evil source. No, of course, yes. The yin and the yang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The up and the down. The up and the, the backwards down. and the forwards. I get it, man. Okay. <laughs> just, just try to stay with the No, I'm happy. I get it. <laughs> but there are other things. So, for example, remember Merlin from Arthurian legend. Hmm. There, in, in almost all of these stories, there's somebody who knows some chemistry or alchemy, and they've got power. This would be medieval magic. Hmm. It's something that you don't expect. It's does something mysterious happening. And in any pre-scientific era, if you do something that's scientific and don't explain it, it's magic. One of the things that fascinates me most, of course, are, or I think anyone, is dragons. They're just the coolest. We all want a dragon. What is the history of dragons? Where do they originate, do you know? Well, that's one of the interesting things. They seem to originate all over the world. There are lots and lots of different countries and cultures that all have a dragon myth. All, uh, all fire-breathing? Not all always fire-breathing, no. And it's but not a dragon. <laughs> I think often fire-breathing. Wait, are, are the Asian dragons fire-breathing? Are they? Do they? I don't know. Fire? I know they don't have wings. Think, yeah, yeah, so there are a different Not number of limbs as wings. well. Yeah, and there are a different number of limbs. Some dragons have four legs and two wings, and some dragons have two legs and two wings, which mm. would be more evolutionarily plausible. Yes, that's, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, did you get what she said there? It's important. <laughs> let, me, let me explain it for the audience at home. <laughs> two legs and two wings is more evolutionarily plausible. Correct. Because... Animals have four, and it would evolve into two in horns and fangs. Basically yeah. correct. Yeah, you, you have four limbs to work with. Why? It just is. It's, it's the... <laughs> Lame answer, no, it's just, it's The branch of the evolutionary tree that led to mammals and other, ver and other vertebrates, they're four limbs. Right. And so that's what you're stuck with. Now, if you want to fly, you got to give up two of those limbs for wings. The bats did it. The birds did it. Mm -hmm. right? The bats, their, two, their four limbs are wings. And birds, they, they don't have front arms. Right? Those are, their front arms are their wings. And so, yeah, that'd be mm -hmm. evolutionary sound. So <laughs> I, I asked the, one of the actors, Isaac Wright, I asked him about dragons, because it's a major part, a major a force in the storytelling. So let's check out. 
how good could a fantasy possibly be unless it's got dragons? Right? <laughs> exactly. It's no fancy unless you have Yeah, you need the dragons. Yeah. You, you need the dragons. And in, in my home institution, the American Museum of Natural History, we had an exhibit a few years ago okay. that was all about mythical monsters mm. and whether they were the imaginations of people who discovered fossils of extinct dinosaurs. Oh, wow. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. So imagine, you know, you know, you know Triceratops. Yeah. Imagine that emerging yeah. from the eroding side of a cliff. That would be pretty... Right? Pretty and there's clearly freaky. no other animal you've seen. It's extinct. Yeah. yeah. But the concept of extinction is a modern idea. Ago, yeah. A few yeah, hundred years ago. So here's this thing. It can't yeah. be... It, it must be. Yeah. Some, some a monster. Yeah. That we fear in the night. Huh. And so... So, yeah, so you didn't know about that? No, no, oh I, I haven't really thought about that. Yeah. I, you know, I think you love dragons because they're great if they're your friend, but if they're not, they're a super predator. And that's another theory, actually, about where we have this idea of dragons from that's even more ancient than the idea of people discovering fossils, this idea that it might date back to when we were very frightened of apex predators. An anthropologist called um, David E. Jones, who puts forward this theory, uh, he studied um, vervet monkeys in Africa, and he noticed that they are particularly um, anxious about three predators, um, lions, eagles, and snakes. And so they have a particular cry that they make when they see any of these three creatures. Really? And if you sort of merge those three creatures together, you sort of get something that resembles a dragon. So he, again, has sort of used this to sort so of snake theorize. So gets you like is this. this. Is this the cry? <laughs> <laughs> Very similar, I think. Very it's similar. exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's more or less. You put it through the monkey translator, yeah, it is so that's bad. what comes out. Yeah. <laughs> So when you think about it, if you have something as ferocious as a lion mm. that has the, the body type of a serpent, such mm. as the snake, but it can fly as a flying predator, such as an eagle, mm. yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll give him that. So that'd be terrible. So yes, he has this idea that we would have had this sort of passed down through millions of generations. We would sort of evolve this fear that's so great that we've created a this primal sort of amalgamation, yes, of these Where three predators. Where does the predators. fire part come from? I mean, we're all scared of, I mean, we would be scared of fire. But mm. They just the added that after. So we, want, we want to make oh, it even more ferocious. Right, right, right. Mm. Is there anything in, in nature that uh, any process by which air can be converted to fire uh, other than, like, uh, Mexican food? <laughs> Well, if it's air as we think of it, oxygen is flammable. And it's flammable. No, no. Uh, I was kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a common misconception. Oxygen itself is not flammable. Otherwise, when you lit a match, you would ignite the atmosphere. All right. Yeah, just want to be clear about that. So, what is burning? So, oxygen makes other things burn. So, oxygen oxidizes ah. things that then themselves burn, and they can make them burn more ferociously than they otherwise would. There are gases that are themselves flammable when mixed. So you take the gas that comes out of your stove mm -hmm. and you ignite that in the presence of oxygen, that thing just goes. Same with pure hydrogen, it just goes. So you could imagine a beast, perhaps, certainly in fantasy mm. world, where there's some process inside that produces flammable gas. And then you need some flinting mechanism with its teeth, and it's just like, it ignites it and out comes flame. When I was at camp, <laughs> we used to, when we would light a match, is that the same thing? It is exactly the same thing. <laughs> Except that would be a different kind of dragon lighting. <laughs> That'd be less ferocious. You didn't Wait smell what came out. Around. It was pretty ferocious. And hold up my tail while I, yeah. That's methane, by the way. Methane yeah, that, so gas. methane, um, that's one of the interesting theories about where we get this idea of fire breathing from, that people have gone underground and they've gone to maybe um, either mine for minerals like gold or they've gone to look in burial mounds and, and they've actually encountered, they've been carrying candles, they've encountered methane of a slightly different kind, and uh, there's been an explosion and they've thought, well, maybe there's some terrible huge creature that lives underground and there's just thrown all this fire in our direction. So. That's right, and underground you have uh, anaerobic life acting. When that happens, one of its byproducts is methane. Mm -hmm. So you mm. can have methane trapped in pockets, mm. and, and especially in mines as well. Mm. You ignite that, flame comes out of the hole, oh my gosh, mm. well, you know, there the, 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 the dragon sleeps. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't come near that if I were in mm. superstitious times. But nowadays, well, I just pull out the measuring tools and we got it. Yeah. <laughs> or plug the hole. So there are other things. There's something on the show called the dire wolf. What, yes. what, tell, what is that? 
Um, well, the direwolves are absolutely enormous wolves. They are um, the companions of the Stark children, so they're sort of like they guard dogs, come spirit animals almost. So, so are they real or are they, they, they fantasy? Well, the, the size that they are on the show is fantastical, but they were real direwolves. What, what are their actual dimensions? They're probably roughly the size of a, of a modern grey wolf, so maybe slightly stockier and they have a sort of more ferocious bite. But they so are. these, they just, they just pumped them up a little. Yeah, yeah they just them made them steroids. quite a yeah. lot bigger. Yeah. So, so, but they're extinct now. Yeah. We lost them in the ice yeah. age, the end of the yeah. ice age. So why not bring them back? Why not? Okay, good. We're glad we agree on that. <laughs> So are we almost at a point where we can do that, where we can bring them back? I'm not authorized to. <laughs> no, I, I don't see why not. I mean, as, as, in the very reachable near mm. All right. future. So if we can do that, yeah. then can we combine the snake, the, the <laughs> eagle, and the, the lion and I make like ourselves that. a dragon? I like that. To create the thing yes. that we fear most. Mm. Yes. <laughs> possibly go wrong. <laughs> well, coming up, more on the science of Game of Thrones. In particular, we'll talk about the power of mind control on Star Talk. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. here at the American Museum of Natural History, and we're extracting science from the hit TV series Game of Thrones, featuring my interview with one of their lead actors, Isaac Wright. Now, in the show, his character is paralyzed, can't walk, but he's got some serious powers of the mind. Let's check it out. He pretty much has the entire history of the universe within his brain, or or that's what's eventually going to manifest itself in there, And, and... it makes him an incredibly powerful and wise character, I think. And, and it's, it's interesting to have that parallel with the fact that he's also such a weak um, physical character. Yeah, and, and of course what comes to mind is Stephen Hawking, yeah. who has brilliant uh, exactly. thoughts, yeah. yet there's this shell yeah. of a physical body yeah. that, that remains. Another sort of authentic element in the fantasy is that you had this power, but you needed it had to be honed. Because in all of our superheroes mm. that we talk about, yeah. or, or people with power, mm. um, when they come into that power, they really don't know how to use it. Yeah, and uh, that's very much the case with Bran. And it's that he, he it kind of it's been spread over many seasons of of him starting to unlock it more and more, and it's, it just starts as this kind of small spark of of something. Um, 
and he eventually finds himself in this cave of the Three-Eyed Raven, uh, where he can fully explore and, and learn under the tutelage of a, a, of a very wise, you know, thousand-year-old <laughs> tree man. Helen, a thousand-year-old tree man, could you explain this, please? <laughs> well, I'm um, just giving you a bit of background on Bran. He uh, essentially walks in on the Queen having sex with her brother, and as a result, he's pushed out of a very high window. He um, appears to be hovering between life and death, and he has these visions. Uh, that this is episode one yes. of the series. <laughs> the Queen is having sex with her brother, mm. and he's a child, walks in, Yes. and they push him out the window. Yes. And he becomes paralyzed. Yes. But then all seeing. Yes. So okay. he starts to develop these, he starts to have these visions and he starts to sort of um, be able to sort of travel beyond his own physical body and into the body of his wolf, his dire wolf. And uh, that's how it all begins, really. It's clear. clear. <laughs> very, very, very <laughs> so, but, but it also meant he had a mentor. Yes. The thousand-year-old tree man. Yes, thousand-year-old tree man. And mentors are... That's a fundamental part of anybody's powers. Mm. But Michael, do you have mentors, comedic mentors? Um, sure, sure. But people that, uh, I mean, I, in, in, uh, no, the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> I, just, I thought I'd check. Well, who was your mentor? You must have a, a, a no, great I, my, I assembled my mentors a la carte. Uh-huh. So there'd be a little piece of this person whose expertise I've greatly valued, but it wasn't the totality of what I sought for myself. Then I find a little bit of expertise in another. And then you get enough of that, you staple it together, and then you have sort of an amalgamated Did you mentor. ever uh, meet Carl Sagan? Yes. So and, he's a little piece of that. Right. Um, and was he like the thousand-year-old tree man imparting the bit. history of the universe a, into a your A little head? bit. This man, I was in high school, and he was, a, he was already accomplished and hadn't done his cosmos yet. Mm. But nonetheless, he was fully accomplished. So a little bit of wisdom came my way. That has affected me my, my entire life. Hmm. The fact that he gave me any attention at all as a high school kid, age 17, and this is Carl Sagan, you know, already famous. I said, if I am ever remotely as famous as he is, I will give time to the next generation of students the way he gave time to me. And that was just a, a certain duty and a, and a passing of a torch that I felt was fundamental. If only I felt that with my children. <laughs> but I don't. Well, so, of course, uh, Isaac's character, uh, he can see through time. Mm. He's got bad attitude in this department. Mm. So here's more from my interview with Game of Thrones star Isaac Wright. Check it out. Bran gets to look at certain events from the past, specifically, um, and there were hints at the fact that he might have had some connection with one of the characters in the past. He sort of shouts and the character turns around but sees nothing. Um, mm -hmm. And it's interesting because it is time travel in a sense. Um, and I think as Stephen Hawking famously said that the, the greatest evidence that um, time travel to the past isn't possible is that we haven't had anyone visit us from the future. And what's interesting about Bran going back in time is that no one can see him when he's back in time. So maybe that's, maybe that's our, our route into traveling back in time. <laughs> So what's your most memorable time sequence, force-telling moment? Well, I think moment? The, the, the key one from this past season, which fits in with the whole kind of deterministic, indeterministic argument with, uh, with the whole time element, is, uh, is the tragic death of Hodor. Bran has, in trying to learn about the past of Hodor, has directly resulted in Hodor becoming Hodor. So, so I think it definitely just lends to that... Um, concept that this was a predestined thing that had to happen. Explain to me working. Working. Okay. Working. What, so this what's going is on there? Mystical, magical ability mm -hmm. um, to be able to take over the mind of another creature or a human being. So okay, you, so you, you become that creature. Yeah. You do, I mean, so you In the body of that creature. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. Wow, so to go into the mind of another mm. creature and it makes me think of this you know, the singularity that people say we're approaching yeah, yeah, when you upload your yeah, brain into yeah. a computer. And that would be interesting. If you can not only upload your brain into a computer, if you could download it into another brain. That asks the question, what is your actual identity? Right? So when yeah. you are occupying the other entity, are you still you well, or are you that entity? I suppose it comes to the yeah, what what is consciousness? Where the, right, that's what it comes down to. And and right. I, that for me, I think is one of the most interesting 
things because we neuroscience is a, is a field that fascinates me and I think not fascinating enough for you to major it in college yeah, no. let, me, let me just say but yet we, we still know so little about right that's it. why it's fascinating and, and as you said in the in the coming years I think that's going to be exactly where the, the route that science is going to go down that's going to be the next because I'm fascinated that two twins who are genetically identical have separate consciousness yeah yeah exactly and every morning I, not every morning but more often than I'm ready to admit I wake up and I say why am I still me yeah. and not someone else, or vice versa? Yeah. Or are you constantly just changing into different That's what I wonder. That's time. what I wonder. Is, is my yeah. entity today just what I think I always was? Yeah. But yesterday I was actually something different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Consciousness. So do you go there in your book here? Um, a little bit, yeah. I, I talk about how um, there are some quite new experiments that have been done with virtual reality, which um, can sort of convince um, the wearer who's um, got a headset on that you can basically change someone's identity with virtual reality and they will experience that new body as their own body. And when it's, they will feel that it's being touched and, and moved around and it's kind of quite a sort of, it's quite a sort of at the frontier. So I it's guess, a modern version of what he just described. Yeah. Yeah. I Except he so. gets to pick who, who, whose mm. mind he occupies. Here it would be some avatar that you created. Yes. A fantasy version of yourself. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But just the potential for that to sort of give you the experience of living, as I say, a completely different life is quite something, I think. But it's not just occupying that state, mm. but it's, by the way, the avatar that I occupy, that's me before, during, and after I occupy it, right? <laughs> so I'm yes. not competing with itself to run its own life. So that's a little different, mm. just a little. Yeah. Right, so what do you know of mind control in nature? Is there any example of that? Yeah, I mean, there's some quite disturbing stuff that we see in nature. I mean, it's interesting what you were saying about- um, I didn't know I was gonna get a disturbing answer. So now, <laughs> I re can I retract the question? Sorry, sorry. Okay, so, so tell me, yeah. tell me. Um, so there's um, a creature, the, a tiny, tiny, tiny wasp called the jewel wasp, which is very beautiful, very, very small. And it basically, completely takes over the body of a cockroach um, to get the cockroach to raise, it lays its egg on the bottom of the cockroach's um, body and basically the cockroach loses its will to resist uh, the power of the wasp and basically raises the wasp's young and serves as uh, its a protector. Surrogate. Yeah, so basically it protects the wasp's young and it also feeds it. So the wasp's young, as it grows, gradually eats the body of the cockroach. And the cockroach doesn't complain, it doesn't do anything. It basically has its mind and its body completely taken over by this tiny creature that's much smaller and much less My marriage powerful. is a lot like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, coming up next, we'll get into the psychology of Game of Thrones when Star Talk returns. <laughs> Right here under the sphere of the Hayden Planetarium. And we're, tonight we're extracting science that can be found in the hit HBO series Game of Thrones. And here is more of my interview with Game of Thrones actor Isaac Wright. You're immersed in this really creepy, yeah. uh, backwards world. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and had you learned about the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages in school before um, you stepped into this acting gig? Only kind of superficially. Nothing, the 10-year-old me wasn't an expert on any kind of medieval uh -huh. history or uh, beheadings and all sorts of uh, Game of Thrones violence. For me, it was just quite fun to be on a set where you had all these dead bodies that you could play around with. <laughs> it didn't really register the, the violence. Right, I see, because it's at 10, it just is. It just yeah, it's is. just, this is, yeah, this is it's cool. Just... Oh, there's a head on the floor. Let's take a picture. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you did a good job with yeah, the head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think what Game of Thrones has touched upon is the quite sort of... Um, brutal side, as it were, of that, that whole aspect of those, those times. Um, and had come under fire for it, I think, on, on, on certain occasions with a number of scenes. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's important that's, that, that that kind of horror did, you know, occur in those times. And yeah, what we don't know, I don't, maybe psychologists know this. Yeah. I have to maybe bring one into the show. Yeah. If you're exposed to violence, mm. does that mean you then become prone to violence? Or is that a world you get to say, I want to make sure my world is not that? Yeah. I want to know. Mm -hmm. and, and none of us here are psychologists. So, Travis, are you, are you there? 
I am here. I've been summoned. Hey. <laughs> so you're a professional psychologist, but also a fan of Game of Thrones. Oh, yes. I am a psychology professor, a big nerd, and I love using fiction to talk about real psychology. And I, fa- I have here your book, Game of Thrones Psychology. <laughs> That's the <laughs> name of the book. Uh, the mind is dark and full of terrors. So what's the takeaway from all this violence in the minds of who's, who's portrayed in their time and in their day and what effect it might have on the audience? That's complicated. There are a lot of different reasons. In real life, it can be hard to study. We, we know that in experiments that you know, watching violence produces short-term effects on someone's behavior, but it's hard to study in the long run. If you have a, an idea that this could turn someone into a violent psychopath, it's not exactly ethical or practical to do that study. So, because I wonder if the same, uh, uh, for, the same force of influence turns some people into psychopaths and others, uh, it has no effect, shouldn't we be studying the people on whom it has no effect? And isn't that where we would learn more than only studying the people that it affects? Because in the end, we want it to not affect you. Yeah, a number of prominent uh, people in psychology have started to take exactly that point of view, that we need to learn more about what brings out the best. You know, throughout the history of psychology, we looked at what brings out the worst in people. Freud looking at everyone as neurotic, and Milgram and Zimbardo looking at what brings out the worst in people's behavior. And Seligman, known for studying what makes people feel helpless, said we need to start looking at the good side of human nature. Uh, Zimbardo, who became famous because of a prison simulation study that went very wrong when some of the guards, the people cast as guards, became very cruel to those cast as prisoners. And Zimbardo said we need to study why some people didn't become those, why some people become heroes. And the main thing he's finding is that there's not a lot known about this. We know a few things about that. We know a few things about resilience, what makes someone you know, do better in trauma and under pressure than other people. But we don't know a lot. And so it is a, a growing area right now. Yeah, I, and I think it's long overdue. In fact, you look in the military, of course, some people would suffer from PTSD and others don't. Others come and you home. cannot always predict who it's going to be. That's interesting, because if you could predict, that would be an amazing advance in our understanding of the psychological state of warriors. There are people who, as a form of coping with horrible situations, do shut down parts of themselves. We also know that traumatic brain injury, you know, injury to areas in, in the frontal cortex, can shut off their empathy for other people. Okay, tell me about the psychology of revenge. This is a recurring theme in Game of Thrones. And I have to confess, revenge, you know that feels good. So it's got to be something deep inside of us. We want to feel power. Power over our own lives, over others, and when we feel mistreated, when something horrible has happened that made us feel helpless, it's hard to maintain a sense of feeling strong. Revenge is one way of feeling we've restored a sense of balance, of of justice in the world, and a sense of power for ourselves. The name Game of Thrones itself can be about power, where the throne is in people's own lives. Every one of these characters is motivated to have power, power over others, power over themselves. Arya, who's seeking revenge, my favorite character, Uh, she's driven to restore her sense of balance in the world, but she already had spunk before that. Back when her father told her what life is like for the lady of a castle, she said, no, that's not me. Learning to swing a sword was her way of having a sense of power even back then. Later, another character was horribly, sadistically abused by someone. You know, found a way to have a, a sense of power in her own life by taking power over the person who had tormented her. So if, if that is something fundamental within us, and you have a clever screenwriter, storyteller, um, cinematographer, they would portray this, and that would resonate deeply within us, and we want to see more of it, presumably. 
And I've always said, I really think Game of Thrones is so popular because of the psychology of the characters. It's not about the dragons, the White Walkers, or the magic. It's about the human beings. They hadn't had dragons in a long time. For most of them, they're concerned about dragons. It's the idea of dragons. The ideas affect their whole lives. Okay. Travis, thank you for sharing your psychological insights. Thank you. This was fun. <laughs> so thanks again. All right, everyone, Travis. Thank you. So coming up, we're going to break down fact and fiction of some key Game of Thrones storylines when Star Talk continues. Exploring the science and the history within the hit fantasy series, Game of Thrones. And Helen, can you tell me about some of the storylines in Game of Thrones that might have actual roots in historical events? Oh, well, I think there are lots of them. I mean, it's sort of almost like a sort of hall of historical mirrors where you can pick out lots of things that actually happened. And so they're not by accident. You're saying they're purposefully put in. Well, I think so. I think they're sort of an inspiration, but usually they're a sort of jumping off point. So things like the wall, which is obviously this huge, completely impossible uh, wall made of ice that divides the Seven Kingdoms from um, the sort of lands of the barbarians beyond, is sort of based on Hadrian's Wall. It was the extreme edge of the Roman Empire, and beyond that was Northern England and Scotland, which was never really conquered by the Romans. And it's an ancestor of Donald Trump. Built this wall, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. It was it, there's still a bit of debate about whether um, whether it was a good idea to build the wall. Whether you know the amount of people you have to have garrisoned on that wall was actually an effective way of you know combating the threat of people from beyond the wall. And how about the uh, the red wedding? Again, uh, that was a sort of possibly inspired in part by um, Scottish history. And uh, some guests of the King of Scotland were invited to this wonderful dinner and it was all going brilliantly. And then suddenly at the end of the dinner, a single drum began to beat and everybody went quiet. And then um, a bull's head on a platter was brought in and um, the Douglases who were at the dinner were uh, all killed. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> you also messed up people over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what it means is, I think, that if you're going to tell this kind of story, George R. R. Martin has to be fluent mm. in so the history of cruelty and story, <laughs> the storytelling that surrounded it, mm. and the legends and the the culture of this kind of barbaric conduct. Absolutely. So it has its roots in this in this sort of real events that from our very unpleasant European past. Coming up next, we'll answer your questions, culled from the internet and the fan base of Star Talk. Your questions on Game of Thrones when Star Talk returns. We're back. Star Talk. Call of the Universe. We're exploring the underlying science from the storytelling in the ever popular series Game of Thrones. And right now it's time for the ever popular. Cosmic Query segment. Let's do it. This is a fan favorite where we call questions from our fan base. So, you're going to read them to me. I've never seen them or yes. heard them before. Dan Hone from Melbourne, Australia. What kind of solar system would Westeros have to be in to experience such long summers? Obviously, it's a normal day-night cycle, he says. Yeah, so that's a great question. So, in fact, we have a 24-hour day, uh, day and night. If we rotated more slowly our day would be longer and relative to the year. And in the case of Venus, its day is on the same time scale as its year. <laughs> so that one day lasts about as long as its year. Now, so... So every day's your birthday. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I, I guess so. That's good. Uh, I thought about that. Uh, <laughs> Um, so I suppose you could configure that. Uh, the difference is to have these long periods of winter and summer, what you would need is a planet that would have a strongly elliptical orbit. And if it's a strongly elliptical orbit, you would spend time near the sun, time far away from the sun. When you have strong, or its host star, when you have strong elliptical orbits, it turns out it's not symmetric. You spend way more time far away than you do close up. 
Comets experience that. Mm-hmm. So a comet's around, it's only here for a couple of weeks, then it's going to spend 100 million years. Is that out because of the, of the slingshot system. effect of gravity is throwing you yeah, back Yeah, exactly. Out? The closer you get to the sun, the faster you will move. And Kepler discovered this in the early 1600s. So if you had went long winters, long summers, the winters would be vastly longer than your summers in this configuration. Got it. Good. I don't got it. Okay. <laughs> Elena Clark from Burbank, California. In Game of Thrones, there is a bright red comet featured. Is this possible? Can there be other colors as well? Do you know this bright red comet in Game yeah, of Thrones? Yeah, there is a, a comet appears because um, it's sort of seen as the sort of herald of dragons returning to the world. But there's also- yeah, there are no red comets, but if you see a comet very low on the horizon, it would take on sunset colors mm-hmm. uh, just the way the sun would because the light is coming through the atmosphere. So you can make something look red, but it wouldn't be red uh, natively, no. So, uh, so the answer to the second question, could there be other colors as well? No, right? Only in, uh, only in relation... There's blue in You get a blue, there's an ion tail that it has two kinds of tails. There's a, with something called a dust tail and an ion tail. So those are the two colors you get. You generally don't get red. Hmm. Okay, go. Terry Rogers, Vancouver, British Columbia. Brand can see both the past and the future envisions. My understanding is that time travel to the future would take a near infinite amount of energy and time travel to the past is impossible, but is viewing the past or future theoretically possible without actually traveling there? Wow. You want me to take this one? <laughs> yeah, you take that. Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> no. No. So, backwards time travel yeah. would take an extraordinary amount of energy because you have to curve. That, so, the, the writer said it backwards. You'd have to curve the fabric of space and time, create a trajectory where you could then join your, your space time life at an earlier time. So, that is theoretically possible. Traveling to the future, you don't need anything special. You just travel fast. Mm-hmm. If you travel fast, your time ticks much more slowly for you. Or if you it. just live. I mean, we're time traveling to the future we right are. now. We're tra- time traveling at a rate of one second per second. Right. But if you travel fast, then you will enter the future at a slower rate than the rest of us, right. as prescribed by Einstein's uh, general theory of relativity. So the, the second part is, can we view the past or future theoretically without actually traveling there? Is there some way... I, I know of no way... You, no, no. Right. Yeah. That was my guess. No. We are prisoners of the present, forever stuck in transition between the past and the future. Did you just make that up? Yeah. Good. Okay. Just... It was good. Well, thank you, Michael, for those, uh, for those questions. So we've been comparing the reality and fantasy of living in medieval times through my interview with Game of Thrones star Isaac Wright. Let's check it out. When I think of the Middle Ages, I think of people in desperate need of mm. science. Yeah, absolutely. And when you are seeing what people do as written and scripted, what are you thinking? Are well, you thinking, think, boy, I'm glad I don't live in the... <laughs> I think more than anything, it's look at this barbarism. I'm the so, barbarism. Yeah, absolutely. But if that is the world, and you're born into that world, do you even know it's barbaric? It just is. That's a very good point. I think, you know, relatively speaking, you're born into that world, you just survive it. You just see... You know, 500 years from now, will people be saying, oh, those bar- bar- <laughs> barbaric years of 2016, I'm glad I don't live there. Yeah, well, you know <laughs> you what, know, given the way everything's given, given, now, given <laughs> I, think, I think that's perfect. Yeah, I mean, is there anything today that you would judge to be medieval and you could just as soon not have any of it? Oh, I think religion is, really? is okay. the number one. <laughs> From medieval right times. There, there, Sorry. there it is. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, well, it's, it's, it's uh, religion has strong roots in a time that's pre science, yeah, basically. So. I think it would, for them, it was their kind of, it was their science. So, that's an interesting observation that religion was their science. Mm. So, in Game of Thrones, mm. the gods are, are real, right? Yeah. Kind of. There's a certain amount of skepticism about them. And one of the um, academics that I spoke to said the reason that she loved the show so much was because if you asked a medieval person what the 
what are the things they'd most like to see? They would say a resurrection and a dragon. And so obviously <laughs> Game of Thrones has both of those and nudity as well. So, um, it's, um, so yeah. I think, Female nudity especially. Yes. 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 They need to work on the male nudity. Yeah. But um, <laughs> they need to up that. But um, yeah. Well, what, what about sacrifice? That's something that's mm. been with the human there we call it civilization, mm. like from the beginning. But in the case of Game of Thrones, we have people being burned just to please the gods so that you could win a battle. Yes. So there's an idea that, for instance, um, the, the flesh and blood of a king is very valuable. This is also an idea we see in medieval Europe as well, but not in quite the same way. And so the child of one of the um, would-be kings is, is burned alive to ensure victory in battle. You know, what, you know what intrigues me, and I wonder if you have insight into this. As a professional scientist... If there's something I don't understand, I just say, I don't understand it. Mm. I'll, I'll investigate it further. In medieval times, if they didn't understand it, they would just invoke some supernatural explanation for mm. it, and then that was that. Yes. Mm. So being steeped, knowingly steeped in ignorance, there was no room for that. Everything had to have a cause and effect. Mm. Well, I mean, I suppose in, in Game of Thrones, you have I mean, one of the things that things that really developed understanding and curiosity in Europe um, as part of the Renaissance with things like the telescope and the microscope. And so, yeah, you already... Just both invented within 10 years of one mm. another, by the Which way. kind the, of, yeah, The telescope and the microscope, extraordinary, yeah. Extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, I think... And, and way, even when people were developing those technologies, there was still obviously quite a lot of debate about whether that was going against religion, whether that was prying into things that God didn't want human beings to know about. So I suppose there's always got to be a way around that. In order for people to have that curiosity, they've got to try and find a way of squaring that with the predominant religious thought. You know, I hadn't day. actually thought that through completely. But you needed that for there to mm. be the full-up renaissance and the, mm. the enlightenment. I think there was there was a sufficient amount of, of curiosity. There was a sufficient sort of organisations were starting to be founded, I suppose, you know, slightly post the medieval period, but people were starting to sort of get together and, and form sort of science associations and, and meet and exchange ideas. And once that starts, I think it's very difficult even for something like religion uh, to kind of stop something I hadn't fully it. appreciated. If you don't have an exchange of ideas, you mm. can you can wallow in your own superstitions without the thoughts ever getting challenged. Mm. I want to pick up on a point that I, I began in the last clip there. At any given moment, is anyone actually saying to themselves, boy, we live in backwards times? No. I bet back then they were not even saying that. Back in medieval times, they're saying, wow, we've come a long way. Look how I now can cure this disease compared with my ancestors or compared with even decades before. And I ask myself what the year 2016 would look like in the year 2116. How primitive will we be to them? How barbaric would we look to them to try to make sure that we can look forward to tomorrow and not fear it? This, a point of view of the cosmic perspective. You've been watching Star Talk. I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and as always, I bid you to keep looking up. <laughs>